0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 29 of my podcast I Stand Strong. I as always am Teddy coming at you from my bear cave in the concrete jungle that is the current currently the frozen tundra of the Midwest. Um yeah, so here I am again. Um last episode I had Tony with me talking about our uh, our love of wrestling and various other wrestling related things all the way down to, uh, our one foray into going, well, my one foray into going to a, uh, old regional promotion around where I used to live in Portland, Oregon. Um, but, oh, and also talking about random, uh, television personalities from that area. Um, like, especially around like, sales and whatnot that, that, that diverted, but it was fun times. So, uh, but today I am going to, because I, uh, I was bored on Christmas and didn't feel like watching any Christmas movies since I'm, you know, I'm now out here away from my family. You know, I got to my chance to see my family via FaceTime, but then I was kind of by myself after that. So I decided to, I just, des- I decided I would watched started watching scream Four the other night and then, but like my internet was spotty. So it went out and I never got to finish watching it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to finish watching scream Four, and then I ended up watching scream five right afterwards. And it made me realize I want to do one talking about my, the way I feel the best to worst or worst to best scream movies are. So, that's right. I'm going to do my first ever ranking kind of episode, which is um yeah, basically I'm gonna go through and rank how I feel the scream movies rank, but I'm going to go from worst to best. Um because yeah, that's just what I feel like doing on this one. So, um fair warning to anybody listening who has not watched the movies, I am going to spoil them when I talk about them. So if you have not watched Scream 1 through 5, or as they call it, Scream 2022, because they couldn't just call it Scream 5, um, yeah, if you haven't watched them, you might not want to listen to this, because I will get into, like, killers and other plot points that could spoil the viewing of the movie for me. I'm not one of those people that, like, you know, knowing something really affects how that movie goes, except for in a couple movies. So it doesn't bother me, but here you go. So, um, so I guess it's a top five in a way, but, um, so uh, with number five, I am going to go with what I think to, like from what I've heard is kind of universally felt is the weakest of the screen movies, but I definitely feel it is at least, um, and that's Scream 3. Um, probably because it's one that has the lead. To me, it feels like, for the most part, one, I mean, I know Wes Craven had almost nothing to do with that one. Where, up until that point, one and two, Wes Craven was a big part of it. Ken Williamson was a big part of it. But Scream 3 kind of was off to me. Like, I, I remember seeing it in theaters... Um, when it came out because I really liked one and two. Um, but watching it, it just, it felt different and I could never put my fingers on what it was. And like, I really hated scream three for a while, except for the soundtrack that has a banging soundtrack. Um, But with scream three, like I couldn't put my finger on what bothered me about it. It just didn't feel the same. And back when I saw it, I didn't realize that, You know, like I wasn't into digging into like, you know, people who worked on the film. I just watched the movies. Now I'm a little more into that. So it's like, it makes sense to know that, you know, Kevin Williamson really didn't have a whole lot to do with it. Um, Wes Craven had, I think nothing to do with it, uh, but then, you you know, the more you dig into it, the more you kind of find other stuff about it that kind of proves why that movie kind of, I think, fell apart. But, um, yeah, so the third one, of course, is the one that takes place in Hollywood. And in long run, I think it ages better. I think I like it more now than I did when I first saw it because it very much, it does have its kind of... Uh, I mean, like like every screen movie has its kind of meta feel to it. Well, with that one, it's very meta on Hollywood and the the world around it, so to speak. And I think that's the shining moment to it. Other than like the opening sequence, I will always give credit to the opening sequence of three with the whole cotton weary, you know, getting the call in his car and then he finds out the killers after his girlfriend. And then you you like hear his voice from the other side of a door threatening his girlfriend, so I liked little aspects of what they used in three, but I think where it really falls apart to me is like I just felt like the the killer reveal was really weak. Um, you know, you you go through this movie of like everybody dying in order of how um, well. I guess I should get into that. The the story is basically somebody they're they're making a third stab movie. Which in the movies, the Stab movies from two, like essentially from Scream 2 on, the Stab movies exist as like basically like movies made based on what to them was real life, but was the movies you've already seen. So like Stab 1 is based on Scream 1, but it debuts in Scream 2. But anyways, they're making Stab 3. And people start dying in order to how this script was written up, like how they were going to die in the movie that's being filmed within the movie. So like I said, really, really meta on the Hollywood thing. Um, and so that brings Gail back out. I want to say, God, see, that's how little this one sticks with me is I can't even remember like, However, because I know Dewey's there because like he's a, um, he's in Hollywood as a bodyguard to, Pi- uh, Parker Posey's character, who is probably one of the standout parts of that movie. Um, but then he's also like a consultant for the movie. Like as somebody who survived the first two, uh, first two massacres, I guess, um, And that brings, but yeah, so that brings, but then like Gail shows, I can't remember why Gail shows up. Like, I just remember she goes, she goes to Hollywood. I think it's because she hears about the murders and she's trying to, you know, do her Gail Weathers thing, um, which, you know, reunites her with Dewey there. And then she meets Parker Posey, who's playing her in the movie. So you have this great thing where, there's like a whole sequence, I remember, where it's basically Parker Posey is pretty much being Gail Weathers while you've got Gail Weathers right there. And it's just this gr- kind of great little moment. I mean, there are, like I said, it, it's not a bad movie. And That's what's funny is it's, it's just to me the in the series, it's the weakest. But, um, but yeah, when it gets down to the killer and you find out, you know, the director of this movie was the killer and... The reason he's the killer is because you find out Sydney, Sydney's mom like ran away to Hollywood a long time ago and they heavily insinuate, and, oh, they don't really even insinuate. They pretty much say she got raped at some kind of party because she was the new hottest starlet or whatever. And she had a kid. She put the kid up for adoption, you know, moved back to Woodsboro changed her name back because she was using like a fake name uh as an actress. And then so the killer is like technically Sydney's like what it would be half brother and he's the director and yeah he's pissed. And they also reveal that you know he was the mastermind behind all of it in the reality. Like he he got Billy to start killing people. And then once Billy died in the first one, you know, he persuaded his mother to step in and become the next, you know, the next killer. So to speak, it to me that, that that's like the biggest weak point to it. Like a lot of that movie plays decently until you get to the whole half brother thing. It just, it just didn't work for me. Um, And then you find out like the, the original idea for scream three, which I think would have been awesome was that you were going to find out basically that the real the third killer was going to be Stu again from the first one somehow surviving being survived somehow having survived having been stabbed several times and had a TV dropped on his face but that's beside the point i would have been down for matthew lillard coming back as that just like unhinged stu as the killer again like just trying to get revenge for you know the person that got away essentially um, and you know, you, 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 even like, you know, I remember I watched a documentary on the Blu-ray box set for the first three of them and they, they have an interview with Matthew Lillard where he's like, yeah, I was supposed to be in there, you know, that we were all set. And then it just, he never heard anything back. They dropped it. They went with a totally different story. And I just, I just feel Scream 3 suffers. It's, it's not a bad movie. It's like, it's like watching the Godfather three. And I like personally, you know, this is another whole argument. I personally think Godfather three is really good, but it, you know, or I think Godfather three is a better full movie than Godfather part two. That's another argument I will have to have with somebody another point in time. But anyways, but even if you see the Godfather three is the worst of the series, a lot of people will agree. It's a bad, it's a good movie. It's just not the best in that series. Well, that's kind of how scream three is to me. It's the worst in the series, but it's still better than 90% of slasher movies that were made. And don't get me wrong, I love me some cheesy slashers. But Scream 3 just kind of, you know, it it falls flat in the the series of things. Uh, Okay, now moving on to my number four. And I think this one will get, will probably upset people, but I don't know. Um, And that's I'm going to say Scream 2 is the second worst to me. Because I don't know, it's just like a little more derivative, you know, it had a little, you know, it, it just didn't feel like it was fully its own movie. like it was very derivative to the first one. But it's still a great movie. Like I can I love watching it. It has some great sense of humor. Um, Jerry O'Connell is okay as the Milk Toast boyfriend, you know, like very, very bland boyfriend. I think he plays that part really well. I think the major ding on it is, you know, I, I think killing Randy off was a big mistake in the second one. Um, because I really felt like his character had a lot of life to it. You didn't need to take him out. It was, it was a great, but it was a great shock death. And so I guess I see that and, you know, it's like, I know why they did it, you know, having, you know, it's, It was a great death that nobody thought would happen um and there's another one of those in this franchise coming up trust me but yeah no so to me two is probably the the fourth and the one um it you know the story is you know it's I, i can't remember how many years later it's supposed to be after the original woodsboro massacre sydney's in college she's you know She's kind of dealing with the aftermath kind of of what she went through. But at the same time, she's showing strength. Um, because like there's a scene at the beginning where somebody calls her with a, you know, with a, a voice box to make it sound like Ghostface and asks her what her favorite scary movie is. And she, you know, she fights back by having a caller ID right there. And it's this great little moment to show, yeah, she's been a victim in this. But she's kind of growing, even though it takes to later parts in the series to, for her to fully become the the full badass final girl, even though she's always been an awesome final girl. Um, and I think that's one of the standouts to the full series is I think Sydney Prescott is probably one of the better modern day scream queen slash final girls in in movie history. Um Especially for her arc to it. But um, but with two, yeah, it's like, you know, she's in college. She's got a new boyfriend. Randy's at the same college. Uh, you know, Dewey's... I don't even remember what Dewey... I think Dewey was like, he oh, he was... Because he was stabbed so badly in the first one, they, you know, they... Uh, he comes... I think he comes back when the murders start again because he wants to be there to help protect Sydney. Even though he's got a limp, which is something that goes away for three, if I remember right. If I'm writing three, he, three and four, he doesn't have the limp. And they bring it back for five, which is kind of weird. Um, but yeah, and two, you know, and then you got, you know, Gail Weathers is, you know, made lots of money off of her, her newest book about the first, the the the, movie, the first movie or about the first Woodsboro Massacre. Um, and they, they heavily hint to the fact that there was a relationship with her and Dewey, but it kind of fell apart because when she wrote the book about the Woodsboro massacre, she kind of wasn't really very favorable to Dewey on some of her explanations, but that's kind of Gail Weather's character. You know, she's the, she's the, the, the conniving bitch, but at the same time, she's got a real heart of gold and I love when they do play with that line she's got sometimes. Um, and I want it to be known that I'm not, I didn't write any of this. I didn't write down like this list. I'm going completely based on how I really feel they, they play in here. I didn't feel like writing it down cause I was afraid I'd sit there and just edit it repeatedly. But, um, anyways, side tangent. Um, but yeah, and like, you know, then you get to two, you know, you have the two killers again, uh, you know, kind of mirroring the first one. And I really kind of liked the, the way they played that one. You know, uh, Timothy Oliphant plays a really good kind of stew ish character. You know, the, I'm going to blame the movies, uh, you know, the movies made me do it kind of thing. You know, he, he wants to get caught as the murderer so he can have this whole thing and be famous for being the person who blamed the movies, I guess. Um, but then they reveal, you know, the true, the true person, even behind him, was, oh god, I can't remember the actress's name. Laura, I can't remember the actress name, but she played Aunt Jackie in, uh, in Roseanne back in the day. Um, and she plays what in like throughout the whole movie, she's there and she plays like this kind of like idol, this reporter that kind of idolizes Gale Weathers. And then at the end of the movie, it's revealed that she's actually Billy's mother, who's had a lot of plastic surgery and I guess a lot of weight loss. So nobody really recognized her ex- until Nev Campbell finally saw her. And I, and, you know, it's one of those, one of those things where you're watching the movie and you don't really notice until like a later watch that she's like, anytime she's like talking to Gail and Sydney's coming up, she goes the other way. She leaves like, as if like, Oh God, I can't let her see me. She'll put this together. Um, so it's this great little. There's a lot of subtlety that w- really plays well in it, but I, I still think it's the fourth best because, like, I don't know. There's. I'll. I'll get to it. But um. But you know, as the movie plays, though, like I, I love the like the whole. Is Jerry O'Connell in on it? Is he not? Um. You know, it's kind of cool to see, like, I, I thought that once again, like the one thing the screen movies always seem to nail is that opening sequence. All the opening sequences have been awesome in those movies. Like with this one, you have Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett are going to see Stab One in the theater and there's a bunch of people dressed up as Ghostface and how creepy would that be? You know, you're in a, in a theater with a bunch of people, dro- excuse me, dressed up as Ghostface. So, you know, like Omar Epps gets killed in the bathroom and then the killer comes back wearing his clothes, but with the ghost face, ghost face mask and Jada Pinkett thinks it's just him being an idiot, cuddles up to him and then she, she feels like something slick on her hand and finds out her hands covered in blood and it's coming from the jacket that the killer is wearing. And then everybody just lets her murder happen in the theater because they think it's, almost like performance art because they're watching a a slasher film. But then some of the other great things in there is, you know, you have some of like the the stunt casting as far as like when they're watching stab, you know, you like, you see Heather Graham playing the Drew Barrymore part playing out completely different to how it actually played out. But that's kind of cool. You know, you get a a brief moment of seeing Tori Spelling playing uh, Sydney and is it Luke Wilson plays? Yeah. Luke Wilson plays Billy Loomis. And there's all these great little moments like in the subtext that I thought were really funny, especially when they do make jokes about that kind of stuff, like who would play somebody in a movie at points. But at the same time, I also love the fact that it doesn't, you know, it, it didn't take itself a hundred percent seriously either because like you have the scene in the classroom where they're talking about sequels And how the sequel is never better than the original. And, you know, there's the argument of, uh, you know, like somebody brings up... I want to say somebody brings up Empire Strikes Back and they're like, it's not fair. That's a trilogy. That's not a, you know, that's not just a sequel. But then, you know, somebody brings up Aliens instead of Alien, which I believe is a bogus argument because Alien is clearly the best, the better movie in the series. But that is, once again, another argument for another time. Um... But then you know it, it's stuff like that, and you know I love the I love the fact that with that this series Wes Craven has always found a way to kind well Kevin Williamson really I guess because he's really the writer of it always seems to find that way of making that meta piece fit in where it could feel really shoehorned in with some people's writing he really makes it sound natural to the situation, you know, the the whole thing of, okay, we're in a, you know, you're watching a sequel that's making fun of a sequel, um, or making fun of the fact that sequels are never as good as the original. Um, so yeah. And and like I said, I feel like this one is a lot of people I think usually put, would put scream two as the second best, but I really feel it fails and compar pales in comparison to some of the, the, the actually believe it or not the later entries. Um, obviously because three was my number five and this is two is my number four. So, but yeah, so good movie, but for some reason it just didn't, it doesn't once again, it doesn't strike me as well as it did for some people or as much as some of these, the next ones. So, uh, Okay, so for number three, I'm gonna go with Scream five, probably because it feels like a really, really good passing the torch movie. Um, knowing that, you know, probably Nev Campbell's not coming back. You know, you you if you never got Nev Campbell to come back for a Scream Six or Courtney Cox, then the movie feels like a really good moving point to go to a new group of people and not have to always bring them back. Even though, do I feel it would be the same if you don't have at least Nev Campbell show up for for a brief point? I don't think it would. It wouldn't feel the same without Gail Weathers having some kind of cameo in it. Here's where the big spoiler to Five comes in. You can't have Dewey come back now because he dies in Five, which as great as an impactful death it is. And it is truly just a, a, a death. It really is a great death for him because he goes down to me. He goes down kind of stupidly, but at the same time it fits his character. Like he's doing what he believes is right. And it costs him his life finally. Um. But that said, it, it's, It was a death that had there had to be a big character death to me in that movie for it to really transcend to where it became because of the fact that like how many times in those movies has Dewey been stabbed? I think what he stabbed like seven times in the first one, like two or three times in the second one, the third one, he takes some damage, the fourth one, he gets... I think he gets like slashed up and beat down and cut co- like you know, gets knocked out, which I'll get to, and then, you know, and obviously one of the next two ones I talk about. Um, so to have him finally die kind of really actually in a weird way, lent some some oomph for lack of a better term. I can't think of the proper word, for- lend some credit to this to the movie. But then you get into some of the smaller things like you know you have Sydney doesn't even show up in the movie till like probably like half hour into the movie and even then she's not even actually in Woodsboro it's just kind of a phone call that Dewey makes her cuz Dewey's the only one that's still in Woodsboro and you have a really great uh a really great opening with Jenny Ortega who yeah, yeah Jenny Ortega um who to me is 2022 has been a standout year for her because she was amazing in X and she really rocks it as the sister of the main character, essentially in this one. And she plays the the quote unquote, drew Barrymore part in this one as far as she's the, the attack at the beginning of the movie. Um, but at the same time, they use her to kind of, once again, do their meta thing where, you know, he asks her what her favorite scary movie is and she starts talking about like the Babadook and the witch, which has got the, the horrible term. I, I really don't like the term elevated horror, you know, basically mean they're just like, it's, it uses horror, but it's very much more, there's a, there's a very much deeper you know a uh, message to the movie like hereditary it's a horror movie but that movie is very much a talk. you know it's really way more about mental health and the de- the deterioration of a family or the babadook which is a really good story about loss and grief and motherhood um so yeah but anyways you know so they have that kind of stuff but then you know it it definitely, though, does embrace more of the gore heavy side. Like, I mean, cause the screen movies were never shy on blood, but like this one really brings out some uh some some blood for it. Um and, you know, she gets she gets attacked and it also brings in some technology because like she has this app on her phone that allows her to lock the doors and somehow Ghostface has the ability to use like he has like cloned her phone or something or at least that app. And he, he keeps unlocking her unlocking her doors on her and then he gets her, but he doesn't kill her. And that's the weird, that's really kind of like, I remember being bumped by that first. I'm like, okay, she didn't die. What is this? And you find out it's all a ploy to bring her sister back into town has, you know, not really trying to, you know, it's not really supposed to be bringing Sydney back originally, it's supposed to be bringing her sister who you really just kind of get the point that there's some, there's something going on with this family. You don't really know what it is. um, But her sit, you know, so like one of the friends calls uh, her sister and basically tells her, Hey, your sister was attacked. You know, you better come back and see her in the hospital. And that's where the movie really begins because it's, you find out it's way more about this older sister who, you know, first big spoiler of the movie. She, you know, she's basically like the illegitimate daughter of Billy Loomis. Cause you find out that her mother while dating their father or her sister's father, I guess had a fling with Billy Loomis, got pregnant, never told anyone she told, she told her, you know, her husband and you know, the guy that the main character thought was her father for most of her life uh, was, you know, that the kid was hers and that, you know, and so they got married and everything. Well, you get this really great monologue where it explains like how she found out who her father is and like how it caused her to go down this very dark road because of it. It also explains why you, you, there's points where, up until that point where you see her like she'll be doing something and she'll look in a mirror and there'll be Billy Loomis uh skeedo Rick himself standing in like in the mirror but the thing that doesn't excuse me 100% make sense is he looks just like he did before he gets killed at the very end of the movie cuz he's got like the blood splatter on him and how would she know that look but anyways um I'm willing to let that part go uh yeah, so she gets she gets brought back, and it brings in a whole new group of friends. And yeah, so it could be seen as hokey that like two of the friend group are the ne- niece and like twins that are nieces and nephew to Randy, because you find out like they never really explain who the father was, but you find out like they're the the son and daughter of Randy's sister, who you meet in the third one. Um. And yeah, it's just it, but like. Then one of the, the the female of the twins is like basically the Randy of this movie, you know, constantly going through like why, you know, the, the rules and how this isn't a, you know, they're not making a, a remake. They're not making a sequel. They're kind of making, I think she calls it a requel where it's basically like it's trying to go back to the originals to appease the original fans, but it's at the same time trying to move things forward. So once again, goes very meta on itself. Um, you find out like Dewey's basically like he's not a sheriff and, you know, he's not on the force in Woodsboro anymore. Something's happened between him and Gail because they were together, but now they're not. Um, but he still like watches her morning show in the morning and it, you know, it's like the highlight of his day. And they go to him because they know he's the only one that can really kind of Give them more information as to like what might, where, how this might go and like what they need to do. And he's really hesitant at first, but then he calls Sydney to tell her listen, whatever you hear, whatever you see on the news, do not come back. It started again. And then you get this really great moment where, you know, after she, he hangs up with Sydney, he decides he has to let Gail know. And he texts her, and it's probably one of my favorite moments in the movie because he texts her. But then after we're like after he texts her, hey, Ghostface is back. Don't come to Woodsboro. He messages her. I hope you're doing well with this smiley face. And in this total moment of just like I understand everything about this thought process, he's looking at his phone. He's like, God, I shouldn't have sent the smile. Fa- I shouldn't have sent the emoji. And I've had that <laughs> process before. So there's like this great, like this great thing of like you, like, and later on in the movie, you find out what happens. Like basically he moved to New York with her because she got a great opportunity as far as being, you know, being a journalist, but he couldn't cut it in New York. And he, he left in the middle of the night because he felt like he, he didn't want to hold Gail back. So once again, he was trying to help someone else even though it hurt him drastically. Um, I mean, he's pretty much, they, they never full on say it, but he's pretty much an alcoholic. He's living in a trailer. He's, you know, he's definitely seen some shit. So almost in a way, I guess his death in this movie kind of actually almost is a, a service to a way, but it also really serves as a great growth piece for the Gail Weathers character later in the movie. Um, but anyways, uh, but yeah, so you got the you you know you've got this this new group of friends and they've put together that most of the people that are dying are somehow related to the original Woodsboro massacre. Because um, obviously, you know Jenny Ortega's character is, is the little sister of the son of Bill, the daughter of Billy Loomis. Um, there's a murder of. Kyle Gallner's character, who I think is another actor that like he he's great. He's great in almost every part he plays. He usually plays a really great small part, but he's in the movie as his total shit face, like shithead guy that gets just slaughtered. And he it's revealed later that he's Stu Mocker's brother or cousin. I can't I want to say it's brother. Um and then yeah, so it like it keeps going. So they put together that everything's tied back. And then you find out that a character from the fourth movie, uh, Deputy Judy, is now the sheriff in the town. And she has a son, and he's part of the core group. But I think where the movie really stands is how much it kind of, like, subverts certain pieces of the genre. Like, there's a whole scene with the the son of Deputy Judy where you know she's gone off to get uh pick up some sushi for him but while she's driving there she gets a call from from Ghostface basically telling her he's about she he's about to kill her son so she's on her way back but i think actually she might die before like she she gets murdered outside the house like in broad daylight is the only part that doesn't make sense but she gets murdered outside the house and then he like it goes back to like pretty much him walking around this house like setting up for when his mom gets back with the sushi. And there are so many points like where he opens a door and he's doing something and you're fully expecting when he closed that door, Ghostface is going to be right there, but it never happens. Like he does this like eight or nine times and it builds this tension really well. Cause you're like, okay, this is surely going to be the time. And then finally it happens. And it's, it really does come out of nowhere. Cause you finally, it it gets you to that point where you're tense, but you're kind of like, okay, Ghostface isn't gonna fuck with him. Maybe, maybe this is gonna, you know, maybe this is over and they're just fucking with you. Thing. And then it happens and he gets killed brutally. But you know, it, it does a lot of these subver- subversions. And they're like you know, the the sister come, when she comes back, the oldest, you know, the main character when she comes back to town, she brings her boyfriend played by I cannot remember the actor's name. I know he's a Quaid and I know he's on The Boys. He plays Huey on the boys, but um Jack Jack Quaid. And he plays like just this total like he has no idea what the Woodsboro Massacre is. Like he has really like he's just blindly in love with the older sister, so he wants to be there with her. And, you know, like the first thing Dewey says when they meet him when yeah, when they meet him in the in his trailer is he's like, Who are you? I'm I'm her boyfriend. How long have you known him? Six months well, you should probably look to him first. Like, basically saying, you always look to the, 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 the love interest first kind of thing. And it's this really great, funny moment, but then there's a whole conversation, like, later in the movie where they're talking about, like, who has the best motives. And there's stuff like, you know, uh, Deputy Judy's son points out uh, that Dewey has, would have a lot of motive. You know, like, all these murders before have, like, destroyed his life. You know, he's he's a wreck. He's, you know... He's lost his wife, his famous wife, and all this stuff. And Dewey's only comeback is, yeah, well, maybe you're the murderer because that hurt. And, you know, it, it, it does a lot right. Um, down to the point, like, the only thing, the only, like, real knock on it I have, I think, is the fact that one of the killers is really predictable. Like, I predicted it from the opening sequence. Um, because in the opening sequence, the Jenny Ortega character is messaging with like her best friend, and then it's revealed, Oh, it's not her best friend, it's Ghostface just pretending to be her. And he has like this video of her outside her house, and you have this whole conversation with her about how, Oh, yeah, I cloned her phone, and everything. I'm like for some reason I get the feeling that girl's going to be the killer, one of the killers, if not the only killer. Um, and I was right. Uh, the The best friend is like, I didn't know her motives, but I knew like somehow I'd predicted she would be a killer. I'll put it that way. Um, so when it's revealed, I was like, okay, yeah, I could see it. Um, and then they reveal that, You know, as Dewey predicted, Jack Quaid was the other killer. You know, he then you find out, you know, this whole thing of how like they're upset because the movies themselves, the stab movies have gotten horrible. And nobody, you know, nobody, the fandoms are so toxic about, you know, people who really love the original stab and blah, 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 blah. And that's why they're doing this because they want a real movie to be made. So like they tried to basically follow the formula of the original m- murders to make a new movie, or to, to so there would be another movie made that would be up to the standards of the original movie. And I'm like, wow! But like, and and in their their whole plan was Billy Loomis's daughter, the perfect villain for that movie. But of course, you know, as all these movies goes, it never goes perfect for them. In fact, it really does play on a lot of the same, like a lot of the same swerves happen. You know, they go to find uh, the body of, um, I think they go to find Jenny Ortega because she's she's supposed to be taped up in a, um, like a closet somewhere. And earlier in the movie, you saw the, the older sister find her. But she has a doubt in her eyes because like, okay, is she part of this? Because, you know, the whole two killers thing and Jack Quaid told her like, listen, you know, you don't know your sister very well. Maybe she's part, you know, I think she's the other killer and all this stuff. So you get this moment where you don't know, does she cut her loose or did she leave her in there? And you find out there that they, you know, they let her go basically or she let her go and that ends up playing in their side then you of course you have Sydney comes back after the death of Dewey Gale comes back just before and Sydney coming back leads to some really good stuff kind of like I think this is where the passing of the torch really comes on strong cuz like you have this whole thing of Sydney trying to tell her listen no matter where you run this is going to follow you you have to just face this um and then it goes into this whole thing of, like, you know, the, the main the main character's like, no, I'm taking my sister, we're getting the hell out of Woodsboro, they're not going to follow me, blah, blah, blah. But then they find out that the little sister, Ginny uh, Ortega's character, doesn't have her spare inhaler, they can't, you know, so they have to go get another inhaler, and the only one she can think of is at her friend's house, the friend that is one of the killers, so they have to go there to, uh, to get them. And it leads to you know the the massacre but it reveal the way what they reveal is like you know just before they leave sydney puts a a tracker on her car because she wants to know where she's going and when she's like okay they've stopped and you hear oh you're shitting me and gail's like what are you talking about and they show like she's like look where they stopped and gail has this shocked look and then Nev Campbell or Sydney calls the main character and is like, listen, you have to get out of there. You're in trouble. And she's like, what are you talking about? She's like, you're in Stu Mocker's house. So it goes back to the original location from the original, the end of the original movie. And it's this great callback that could have fallen flat on its face, but it worked. And the really sad thing is this one doesn't have, like Wes Craven had was already passed by the time this movie was made. But there are a lot of like little references to him, like you know, one of the characters' name is Wes. It does have a for Wes, you know, uh. dedication on it. Sorry, taking my hat off. Um, it's warm in my room. But anyways, I I'm like really digressing. I gotta start burning through because I still got two more movies to talk about. Um, maybe I should have put number five at number two. I don't know. Cause I do have a lot to say on that one, but, um, but yeah, so number five, really good, way better than has any right to be. Um, but for the, the tie back to the first one, it's like, makes it so strong to me. And maybe that's because I do have nostalgia for the first one, but, uh, so for number two, you know I'm not going to put uh, Scream 1 has to be the first one. It's the original. So I'm just going to go with, go with, you know, make that clear right now. Scream 1's going to be number 1. Um so that makes number 2 Scream 4. And I remember not wanting this movie to be good. Like I remember or not not wanting it to be good, but thinking it was just going to be a dumpster fire because after the third one there's no way they could do anything right. It's just cashing in blah blah blah. And then it uses that as like a big part of the story. Um, like you have the double fake in, opening. You have like the first set of girls that get slaughtered. Then it flashes up. Stab six. And then it goes to Kristen Bell and Anna Paquin talking. Like, you know, the TV turn like a, the screen turns off. And after it says stab six. And it's Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell talking on a couch. About how stupid the movie was. And blah, 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 blah. And then. Suddenly Kristen Bell just snaps and stabs Anna Paquin in the stomach and then it flashes up, stab Seven, and then it goes to the true movie. Um <laughs> and I loved that. That and the fact that it tie it does a lot, whole lot of thing of it makes very clear that a lot of these characters are super intelligent, yet still in a situation like like all of the movies did, all the screen movies did, you know. She They're super intelligent, but still, when when life or death hits, you make stupid decisions. Because, like, the first girl, like, you know, when she's, she's talking, like, the true opening of the movie, when she's talking to Ghostface, she makes a whole statement about how, you know, she's, you know, she's a 4.0 student, she's got this massive, you know, IQ or whatever, but still, when she's getting chased by Ghostface, she goes up the damn stairs instead of, you know, Not really. I mean, she goes, tries to go out the front door first, but it gets stopped, but then goes up the stairs. So it, it does a lot of great things, but then it also is probably the first one. They really embraced the gore. I mean, the, like I said, the, the earlier ones had gore, but this one, man, it, it brings it. Um, and then you go, you know, like after the, the murders, it goes to, you know, our, our main character, Jill Roberts played by, uh. Or is it Jill Roberts? I think actually that was her name. Um, well, Jill. Played by... Uh, oh, God dang it. I had her name off the top of my... I, I just lost her name. And I guess it's not important. Um, anyways, and she's Sydney Prescott's cousin. And you get this... You, you, know, you get to hear lots of stories about how the fact that Jill, uh, Sydney's about to come into town because she's promoting her book, Out of Darkness. You know, it's her finally writing her own narrative Um, and like, you know, like kind of like a self-help book or whatever. So she's coming back into town. It's getting close to the anniversary of the original Woodsboro massacre. And the killings start again. Um, Dewey is sheriff. You have deputy Judy who later goes on to play, play sheriff Judy in five, who obviously has a thing for Dewey but Dewey's married to Gail and she's a struggling writer cause she's trying to write uh like fiction or whatever now. And it's not working out well for her, but then the murders start and it just completely derails everything. And it turns into, you know, your typical movie, but then it takes some of the more modern stuff. Like it does talk about, you know, the, it does take a couple shots at like torture porn and how, You know, there's no substance. It's just violence for the violence sake. And it does some great things. But then it also does some really weird, like, commentary to me on, like, you know, social media. You know, you do do have a conversation about a a Facebook killer and Scream or Stab Six. But then you have a character in this movie that's walking around constantly. Like, he does a, a constant webcast I think is what it's supposed to be, you know, and it's like, he's got this camera on the side of his head, the entire movie. And he's broadcasting his life to devoted fans, I guess, you know, I mean, he's a high school kid. How many devoted fans did he probably have? Probably way more than I have listening to me right now. But, um, you know, he, you know, but then you meet, uh, Rory Culkin, I believe it was, is the one that's in that one. Um, and he's like the head of the, the, the cinema club in it Woodsboro High and uh you know the the core friend group around Sydney's niece Jill. You know, you have Hayden Panettiere playing this very, very intelligent and headstrong female character that also really knows her horror movies. And it's probably the hottest I've ever seen Hayden Panettiere. Um and that's saying something. Um But then, you know, but then you have, well, by the end of the movie, you have a very weird meta feel to the story of, you know, like the killer was making this time the killer's making his own movie. You know, like he's probably, you know, they they have a whole conversation within the cinema club where the Rory Culkin character and the guy that films everything on his, you know, his head cam are basically talking about how, you know, if you're going to, you know move forward with this, the killer would have to make his own movie to make it perfect and all this stuff. So it's like, then it, you know, but then this brings Gail back into, you know, she wants to be investigative journalist again. So she wants to back into it, but st- you know, I almost said Stewie, uh, Dewey is holding, you know, like trying to keep her back from the investigation, which they never say it. But to me, like I always read it as like, he's trying to protect her. So he doesn't want her to be part of this. Cause he doesn't want her to be, in the line of fire again. But at the same time, he really know I think he kinda knows he can't keep her away from this because, you know, she's been a part of it for three previous times. So um but then Sydney just happened happening to be back bring puts her in the middle of it. And the killer kinda does too, because like she's at her book signing. And the first time Dewey and her interact, he comes in and says basically that there was a phone to do with a crime that was linked somewhere in that area. And they find the phone in her, the trunk of her, uh, rental car with a picture of Sydney with like blood smeared on it. And it just, it really, it hits on so many levels to the point, like, and once again, it does use some nostalgia. Like they do use reuse the whole, uh, quiz to save someone's life um point like late in the movie but where the movie stands out is when it comes time to reveal killers because this is one of them other than the original one i did not see the turn coming for the the for the for the villains or for the killer and that goes to you know it ends up being the cousin is one of them and rory culkin is the other and the way they reveal Rory Culkin first is the shocking one to me because it's like he's taped up outside this window and Hayden Panettiere, who kind of has a, like, she kind of plays hard to get with him, but you kind of get the feeling she digs him, but not saying anything. But they're kind of getting, you know, getting close at this, you know, this after party they're at because Rory Culkin and his buddy throw a -a scream-a-thon every year where they watch like all this or stab-a-thon where they watch all the stab movies in this like remote location kind of thing, but it gets broken up because Gail gets attacked at it. And so they're at an after party and they reveal Rory Culkin because she saves him by like, they just, the killer asks her like, what, what was the remake where, and she just rattles off all these horror remakes from you know the last like two years going into this or whatever and when she doesn't get an answer back she goes out she's letting you know she's letting him go and he stabs her in the gut and i'm like what the f- no and then it you know but there's this pain to it because like he makes this comment as he stabs her like all these years he's been next to her in class and they've been part of the cinema club and now she's noticing him kind of thing. So there's this real hurt to it. But then it goes forward a little further. And I can't remember how they reveal the cousin now for some reason. I just watched this movie yesterday. Um, how did they reveal her? I want to say it was like, because you knew Rory Culkin. I think it was when, you know, because Sydney hides her under a bed and then goes to do something. And when she comes back, s- somehow they reveal it. But anyways, you know, she, I think it's like basically she comes, like Ghostface comes running in. Corners her after Rory Culkin's already been revealed and pulls off the mask to be her. But then... You get the whole spiel of why she's doing it. How you know she's she's always been compared to Sydney because of how popular Sydney is, because of what she's been through, and she wants her fifteen minutes of fame. So she set up this thing to be like the ultimate, you know, the ultimate final girl kind of thing. And she turned like much like Billy to Stu, she turns on uh, Rory Culkin and kills him to be, you know. So she, cause she has to be the lone survivor for this to work kind of thing. And then she kills Sydney and, or thinks she kills Sydney. And then comes the genius moment of the movie to me watching. I can't, God, I'm going to have to remember her name. Um, anyways, watching the, the Jill character do her, her snap and start, like beating herself up. Like she starts like ripping out her own hair, stabbing herself in the shoulder. She does like all these things to make her look like she's just been through hell. So she looks like the ultimate survivor. Like she throws her, uh, smashes her own head into a picture and cuts her face up real good. Give me a second. I'm, I'm typing in. I'm also Googling as I'm here. Cause I want to, I want to remember what that actor's name is. Um, or actress's name is, uh, emma roberts and yes she was Jim uh jill roberts but uh emma roberts plays jill but anyways uh but then like she throws herself like it, it's very reminiscent of uh the scene in fight club where edward norton beats himself up in front of his boss but it's way more maniacal and then so you know she you know now that she's the only survivor you know she throws herself to the ground right next to to sydney as the cops show up and um you know as she's being taken out to the the ambulance there's all these people asking her how you know asking her questions but she's you know she's all beat up so she's not answering anything but there's this like really like subtle creepy smile on her face like she's getting what she wants and then it's tough ta- you know she goes to her in the hospital room and she's sitting there you know and she's talking and Dewey comes in and, t- you know, tells her he's glad she's alive and, you know, how it's, you know, what she's been through would be a great story, it would make a great book or whatever. And she, she makes a comment, you know, yeah, I, if I if I were to do it, I'd want Gail to write it with me. It would be perfect because, you know, we have the matching wounds because she, she stabs herself in the shoulder, but then Gail was stabbed in the shoulder later, or, you know, earlier in the movie. And he's like, yeah, I imagine Gail would like that. And he's like, no, you get some rest. And he goes off and he's talking to Gail. And there's a moment, the moment he realizes that he's talking to Gail. And she's like, yeah, he, she really wanted, she would really like to write a book with you, you know, cause you guys got the matching wounds. And Gail's like, she got stabbed in the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. She got stabbed in the shoulder. How'd she know I got stabbed in the shoulder because she was supposed to be at her house uh, locked upstairs until the the Stabathon got broken up, and she came in just for the after party. But they put it together, and the, you know. But oh, and then while Gail's or while Stewie is talking with Jill, I forgot about that part. While he's talking to her, he he makes a comment about how you know, or she makes. Sorry, first Jill makes a comment like you know, oh, I wish Sydney would, would would were still alive to to help me get through this. And he's like, well, I'm not supposed to say anything, but she's, you know, it's, it's not a hundred percent, but she may pull through, you know, she's, she's hanging on. She's always been a fighter. And you see this subtle moment in her eye, like how the fuck is she still alive kind of thing. So when Dewey leaves, she instantly like takes all the IVs out and whatnot and goes after Sydney, which then of course, you know, so you've got her going after Sydney, then just after that, you have Dewey and Gail figure out, wait a second, how did she know that Gail was stabbed in the shoulder unless she was part of it? And she's going after, so she goes after, uh, they go after her and, uh, you know, yeah, you have this really great kind of fight sequence in the hotel or in a hotel room, uh, in a hospital room. I say fight sequence even though frickin' it's really mostly just Emma Roberts beating the shit out of Nev Campbell. Um. And then, you know, Dewey comes in and gets knocked out by a bedpan. You know, Gail comes in and barely gets saved by Deputy Judy, even though, like, they hate each other that entire movie because Judy is trying to make the moves on Dewey the entire movie. Um... But you've got this this great moment where they're like she's basically now it's out there. She can't hide it anymore that she was she was one of them and she's fully snapped. And she shoots Judy, Dewey's unconscious on the floor because of a bedpan headshot. And then uh, Gail she makes Gail stand up because she now has Dewey's gun and is basically, you know, about to kill her, and you hear a. Uh, and like all's, all's, uh, you see like, uh, Nev Campbell kind of stirring and look up at something. And then you see your hand, like turn, turn a knob of some kind. And then you see, you know, goes back to Gail and she's like, listen, I get it. If you're going to kill me, just let me, can I just have, say one thing? And Jill's like, sure. What the hell, you know, what the fuck ever go ahead and say whatever. She's like, clear. And he, he, it's like clear. And you seem to have Campbell pop up with the shock paddles. Yeah. Clear. Puts them both on either side of her head and just fries her ass. And then makes a one liner. And I'm like, that works somehow. Like how did a one liner work in a modern horror movie? Cause she, I think she said something like you forgot the fir- the first rule of, you know, of a sequel you never fuck with, or of a remake. You never fuck with the original And I'm like, oh my god, that could have been so cheesy, yet it works so well. And then, of course, they have to do the, you know, she's not fully dead. She comes back for the one final scare, but Nev Campbell, of course, is ready for it with a gun sitting next to her. She just pulls the gun and, like, shoots behind her, knowing that Jill's sneaking up on her with a piece of glass or whatever. I don't know. It just, it, four just has all the joy like I have so many joyous moments in four that I, I had to put it at number two but number one has to be the original um I remember watching the fir- the first time I saw a trailer for it my sister was actually going to see it that night and me and my parents were watching some movie and there was a trailer for it on the movie we rented and she's like oh I'm going to see that and I'm like oh that looks cool I'd love to go see that with you Amy and I didn't go that night with her but my sister Amy took me you know, like maybe a week later we went and saw it. And that movie, like it, it I had feelings horror wise that I hadn't had in a long time in a horror movie. Like it legitimately scared me at points. The, the meta commentary and the way the, the, the kids spoke a lot older than they really, you know, they really should have in a way. But, you know, all the, all the conversations about the, you know, like, almost making fun of the movie they're in um, really worked. But then you get to, like, the the whole Stewie or, yeah, Stew, uh, Stew and Billy reveal caught me completely off guard. Like, Stew being revealed was one thing, but then all of a sudden you get the reveal of Billy was, like, you know, was the killer the whole time. Even though they threw the red herring at you early, and you're like, oh well, they're not going to make it the boyfriend. That's too easy, you know. The whole cell phone falling out of his pocket when he climbs in the window after uh, Sydney's attacked. But that movie just worked on so many levels. Like I remember legitimately being uh, tensed up when there's a scene where the cameraman's watching the the camera that was hidden inside Stu's house at the party and watching Randy watch Halloween. And talk about how Jamie, you gotta turn around, Michael's right behind you, and uh, Ghostface is walking right behind Randy. So it did a lot of really great things on top of just being like almost a perfect slasher movie, even though in many ways it's a satire of slasher movies. But there's a reason Scary Movie is such a great comedy movie, too, because Scary Movie is almost a perfect satire of a satire, which could technically be a fall apart if you really look at it. You know, what I mean, and by all means, that shouldn't have worked. But the original Scream is is almost a perfect movie. I mean, I imagine if I really thought about, could find find things wrong with that movie. Um, but when it comes down to it, like if if I were gonna ever, if there's one I want to put on, it's gonna be the first one, just for a lot of the great things. You know, like the some of the creepy stuff, like Henry Winkler playing the principal is really creepy at points and, uh, the great West Craven cameo as Fred, the janitor wearing the Freddy Krueger outfit, you know, really make, you know, gets a laugh out of me, even though it's in the middle of this movie that really you shouldn't be laughing at. I mean, but it's, that's what made it work. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could go on for, for hours on these movies, I mean, I already went for a long time. I've already gone for an hour, just ta- just trying to ra- rattle off about the five of them. Um, but yeah, so if the, if there's a takeaway from this one, go watch like watch all the Scream movies, but especially watch the first one. I mean, it's 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 a classic for a reason. Um, You know, it re- reinvented a genre. It created a new Scream queen out of somebody that. I would have never guessed was was going to be a scream queen when I first saw her saw something of hers because the first time I saw her was on Party of Five and I could care less for that show. Oh, but how could I talk about the original scream without talking about like the most like the greatest aspect to that movie? The opening sequence with Drew Barrymore, she was booked as like the main character of that movie in so many levels and then she's killed in the first like 10 minutes of the movie, a la Janet Lee, and Psycho. And nobody saw it coming. It shocked so many people to the point that, that was almost a bigger, that was almost a bigger shock reveal than the killers at the end of me to some extent. like you have Drew Barrymore in the movie. You kill her off in like the first 10 minutes of the movie, but it did it made a point. And the, you know. How much of this is true? I don't know, but there's rumors was Drew Barrymore was supposed to be in a different role, but she wanted that role. She wanted to be the person that had their name on the movie, but then died because, like, how much more shocking would that be if I die at the beginning of this movie? Um, and yeah, it it set up it set a, that that right there set a tone for what these movies will be, and I still like I said, even though three is like is the worst of the series to me. It's still a good movie. I can still watch it and have fun with it. I just think there's other ones I like more. But number one will always be a classic. It's a good go-to slasher film because you can watch it. It's not always scary. It does the right, right moments for scare. It has the right moments for a good laugh. But at the same time, it makes fun of itself. And how can you not like that? So, yeah. That's my my rankings of worst to best with the Scream movies. Um, okay, so I will do my usual things of saying thank you to you guys for listening to me. Um, I will say thank you to Tony for coming on the last two episodes before this because he's, you know, it's always fun to, to shoot the shit with him. It's just even more fun to record it and put it out there. Um Thank you to Spider for you know for my artwork. Uh yeah. So I guess that's pretty much where we're at. So if you want to reach the show, um you can reach the show at standstrongcast at gmail.com. Um if you have questions, comments, or heck, if you want to tell me how I'm wrong that Scream 3 isn't the worst one, or that scream two shouldn't be as low as it is, or maybe, maybe you believe scream four or five is the best one in the series. I don't know. Like, feel free to email me that. I gladly want to read that stuff because I always love to hear other people's takes on things, but so I am now going to wish you, uh, I I'm going to say, see you in two weeks and have a good one. Bye Bye.